From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Sydney Kerbonik, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. So this past summer, I had the amazing chance to participate in an interview with Buffy St. Marie, an internationally recognized Cree singer-songwriter and activist. This week, we'll be listening in on her thoughts about life and her advice for young people. We'll also be airing an archive piece from November 2016, where Lauren Carter interviews Ariel Deranger, an Indigenous rights advocate and a member of the Athabasca Chippewyan First Nation. This past August, I attended the Edmonton Folk Music Festival and had the chance to interview Buffy St. Marie. Buffy is a Cree singer-songwriter, a musician, an artist, a social activist, an Indigenous leadership advocate, and so much more. She was born in Saskatchewan, and she has been playing music since she was three years old. She taught herself to play piano at a young age. She is also widely known for her anti-war songs and for saying what she truly believes. Her music was censored by the United States government in the 80s. She was part of a blacklist of musicians who were deemed dangerous and determined to encourage widespread citizen protest. Now she is 77 and she just finished touring across Canada this summer. Speaking to Buffy St. Marie was uplifting to say the least. The interview comprised of four other interviewers, myself included, and we could only ask her one question, and it was so hard to figure out what to ask her, but it didn't matter because she said so much in all of her answers. She experiments and thrives through creativity, and she has great advice for those who feel down by the current social and political events. about Sesame Street and Academy Awards and things like that, which is very nice. But for me, the most fulfilling thing that's ever happened to me hasn't been awards and things. It was when I found out that two of my former scholarship recipients had gone on trying to be the presidents of tribal colleges. And one of them, Dr. Lionel Bordeaux from Rosebud, South Dakota, from Sintikleska University, Spotted Town. Um, uh, he, he not only founded the Tribal College and, and is still its president, but he also founded the American Indian Higher Education Consortium. So the point behind the story really is that sometimes you can do something small yourself and somebody else will go out and maximize it in a way that you, can, you could never have expected 
the world to do, and that those things were done by other indigenous people, you know, starting back in the 60s, day after day, just learning and teaching each other. <laughs> it still brings tears to my eyes. <laughs> just don't give up on yourself because there's some troll in the neighborhood who's, you know, having a bad day. Just don't believe in trolls, you know. They're, trolls are, are people who are, are, are just still immature. You know, they'll get over it eventually. They're throwing rocks and throwing mud now like babies do. But hopefully everybody outgrows that. But don't let that kind of stuff bring you down. I see so much um, unrest in rural communities, you know, including Aboriginal communities, where um, this, in, instead of encouraging each other, people are bringing each other down. And you have to remember that that kind of behavior it comes down basically from the army, from the military, from the pecking orders of Europe that were established in residential schools. And so um, you, can't, you can't let that run your life. And just like in that song, You Got to Run, last night, I said, you know, run. It might mean running for election in your community. It might mean running a marathon for something you believe in. Or it might mean running your own life. Don't be afraid to run your own life. I think that if there's one thing I can share with everybody about uh, living as I'm 77, and to live a long life and still be healthy, I mean, there's, there's two things. And most people don't want anything to do with either one of them. One is zero alcohol. Not, oh, cold one on the weekend, and then I talk, no, not, oh, wine with dinner, that doesn't count, but zero alcohol seems to make a difference for a lot of people. Just having a clear mind every single day so that you can handle whatever comes along. It's really, it's like you're having a best friend all the time. Just have to have your own health and sobriety. And then um, <laughs> the other thing that keeps me healthy is stuff like ballet, you know, dancing and having fun, moving around a lot, you know, running around after a rock and roll band and you know, a lot of exercise. Uh, so it was really hard to pick a single question, but this question is more mm, your advice for young people. So um, out of all your years worth of experience, what have you learned that could help young people now dealing with the same ongoing issues of climate change and indigenous rights? Oh boy. Well, in the first place, just what I told, just what I said in the previous answer, you should share with, with people who want to know that too. Mm -hmm. We have to, as people, we have to be healthy. We have to be at our best. Oh, there's no sense. There's no, there's no sense getting up in the morning. You know, keep learning every day. It's like getting something for nothing. I mean, maybe you're not going to go to college. Maybe you are. But when you're searching the internet, you know, try to learn things. There's people out there who have a lot to teach. I was watching this morning, uh, 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 I was listening to an audible book called The Botany of Desire, which is about the intelligence in plants. Yeah, including how GMO is really like, uh, mm, we're not so sure about that. But do you keep on learning? Um, the world is new every day for everybody, and there's no reason why um, we can't be part of the learning and the solution. I mean, we always have to be. I mean, I, just like everybody else, I'm aware of what's going on with the weather. I mean, I truly believe that somebody's manipulating the weather. I cannot believe that 
um, military science collaborations are not going on to weaponize the weather. And I don't know what to do about it except to stand with everybody else who's standing up for the opposite. I mean, I think people get scared about making change because they feel as though they're going to have to tear everything down. Going to have to go and tear down the army and tear down the, the whole system, you know? They're going to have to. No, you don't have to. You can walk away from it and come up with something better. I really think that's the only alternative. So for young people who are going into the sciences or going into the arts, you can be involved in staying abreast of things. And when you get a chance to make your contribution, make it every time. It's not always on a stage. It's not only writing and being involved in media and the arts. It's just, you know, just making the world a better place is a matter of, like the Dalai Lama says, he says, you always have the best tool for peace with you all the time. It's your smile. I mean, I'm in airports all the time, and I see people who are coming toward me, and I see some woman on the edge of tears, and she's like this, and her husband's like this, yeah, and I know she's getting beat up, I know that. You know, slip somebody a smile, you know? I see some guy who's so stressed out, I mean, you can sometimes be the neutralizing factor in somebody's day. And it's, it's a real magic. I think it's things that we used to do as, as indigenous people throughout the world, but it's never become popular to pecking water societies. I mean, the kind of societies that came up with things like the Roman Empire and the Inquisition, you know, things like that, where, where the elite are on top. They're not really trying to help the people on the bottom, but we are the people on the bottom. You know, us everyday people at a folk festival, you know, most of us anonymous, we are the everyday people and you can't, you can't believe that, um, that they're bigger than us because they're not. There's, a, there's an elite in charge of things and I think they're making terrible decisions, but you know what, we have, as human beings, we have survived bad leadership before. And we don't have to tear down bad leadership. We have to stick up for something better and that happens kind of on the local level. Ceremony is very important for our community, and one thing I'm wondering, um, I could hear it in your music, but uh, could you speak to, a bit to how um, spirituality and, and ceremony has affected your life and your music? Gosh, spirituality in my life and my music are almost the same thing. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel as though I get away with an awful lot because in the first place, I can't read music and I only found out a few years ago that I'm actually dyslexic in music. So I can write for an orchestra, but I can't read it back the next day, right? I'm actually truly dyslexic in music. And I'm very much today the same as I was as a three-year-old, just playing music. And for me, my connection to the creator was through creativity. So it's very hard for me to untangle those things. And as I imagine it would have been, I mean, I was lucky enough to spend time with elders in the 60s. And I mean, they and their parents grew up in the horse and wagon and teepee days, right? And the things that they showed me made me believe that the way I was as a non-schooled musician who, who has this going for me, this gift anyway, and, um, uh, it, it makes me feel as though it's a very human thing. So what I'm trying to say is I think that creativity and our connection to the Creator are very natural. And I think it gets stomped out of most of us just because of, you know, television and school and... Uh, so creativity itself is sacred to me. The Creator is sacred to me and I've always, 
I've always had no problem at all believing in the creator and in the creator in many forms. And I, I loved all of that so much as a kid that when I got to college, it's what I majored in. I majored in Oriental philosophy because I was so thrilled and fascinated by other people's um, interactions with the creator. And as a creative person myself, as a kid, when everybody else was playing with Barbies and you know footballs, I was in the house playing fake Beethoven and, and Mozart and making things up and looking at little kid pictures and kind of playing music to the pictures, kind of like scoring a movie. So it's all very natural to me. So I guess our, uh, our spirituality in communities, it means a lot to me, not only because of the memories that I've had of, of elders, spiritual elders, who were kind enough not to send me away either from the powwow drum or from ceremony. That's, I feel as though that's all very natural. It, it hasn't been written down. It's never been pounded into anybody. I mean, native spirituality throughout the world. And I think the core of spirituality, even in people whose, whose uh, ancestors came from Europe and who did go through the Inquisition and the Roman Empire, I feel as though that connection to the creator, you know, I just feel as though it's inherent in everybody. It's, I just think it's part of life. So one, of, one time, um, I was, I think I was talking to, I think it was Gordon Tutusis, and we were talking about uh, ceremony and how slow ceremony sometimes seems to, you know, oh gosh, are they ever going to be done with this, you know? But he said that it's not a matter of checking off boxes. Oh, you did this and you did this and the feather goes over there and the something else goes, it's not, none of that. It's none of that. It's the time we spend with each other that's really enriching. It's like it's it's kind of like if you were a plant. It's like you know we each have our own sunshine that we that we shine on each other. You know, a good heart, and I think that's what happens in ceremony. And yet, so much of ceremony, I saw it like in the '70s and the AIM days. You know, you'd always have a couple of guys who, you know, a couple of beefy guys, and you know they were in charge, and and you can tell they'd been through residential schools. I mean, they were going to take you into a sweat. Man, this is going to be the hardest sweat you've ever been. You know, this competitive kind of bully nature that even can, you know, it can appear anywhere, but it's childish and it's obsolete. And the rest of us, when we go home, you know, all of that bullying and obsolescence can go away because it's a new day for you. So I say follow your heart, you know, and I, that's what those old people did. Yes, they were doing things in a certain protocol, but it wasn't just a checklist of things they were doing. It was this time that they were spending with one another and the experience of going through something together as a group with an intention and I don't think that ever gets lost, but I think it does get overshadowed by our schedules and whatever's being advertised. Those the deadly Buffy St. Marie. Thank you so much, Buffy. That was deadly. Cindy Carbonic participating in an interview with Buffy St. Marie this summer. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CGSR 88.5 FM on Treaty 6 territory. You can find this episode and others on our website at terrainforma.ca. For this week's second story, we dug into our archives and found an interview done by Lauren Carter with 
Ariel Deranger, an indigenous rights advocate and a member of Athabasca Chippewaian First Nation. Ariel highlights the climate crises faced by indigenous peoples of Alberta and the moral and legal obligations of governments to work with indigenous peoples in building progressive and aggressive climate change solutions. Thanks for tuning in to Terra Informa. I'm recording from the annual Parkland Conference at the University of Alberta, and I'm joined by Ariel Deranger, a member of the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation and indigenous rights advocate. Ariel just gave a powerful talk at the Parkland Conference with the title, Recognizing Indigenous Rights and Creating Climate Solutions. Thanks for coming on the show, Ariel. Can we begin by having you introduce yourself and tell us about your role at the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation? I'm a member of the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation, which is a Dene community located downstream from Alberta's Tar Sands within Treaty 8 territory. Um, our community lives is l- largely housed in the community of Fort Chippewan, Alberta, which is the oldest settlement. So my role is to provide sort of briefings and updates on what's happening within climate change and Indigenous rights issues at the regional, national, and international levels, uh, and provide sort of um, recommendations on how to move forward, and then promoting any of our actions that we do for advocacy, challenging either policy or how we're going to challenge a project or what we're doing in those fields. What did you speak about at the Parkland conference? Today, I was really sort of sort of talked about where we are in the province with how we develop and, and view energy and our economies and indigenous rights and sort of like gave us historical overview of, of all of that and then moved into climate change and how climate change poses a huge threat that is much more broad and distributed than the direct impacts of oil and gas development and how indigenous rights within that discourse is largely being ignored even though internationally indigenous rights and knowledge have been recognized as key elements and components to addressing the climate crisis we're in. So how do we move within that knowledge of Indigenous people as being not just stewards of the land, but people that have key knowledge that could actually frame the future, that could be a climate-stable future that also recognizes the rights of Indigenous people and leads us down the path we need to, rather than the current path we're going, which is sort of status quo, business as usual, oil and gas. So various organizations and government policies have affirmed Indigenous sovereignty and rights to protect cultural practices. It's part of the treaties, constitution, United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. But the efforts to protect Indigenous cultures have fallen short in many cases. Why are there so many problems in upholding Indigenous rights? I think that the the reason that we're having such sort of discrepancies around talking about respecting Indigenous rights and implementing international declarations like the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, or even upholding uh, Canadian law and the Canadian Constitution and treaty rights is because the ideologies and the worldview and values of Indigenous communities is at odds with the colonial values, which is Colonial values are sort of rooted in this idea of of empire and wealth and power and um, sort of extracting resources from the natural world. Whereas indigenous communities are our cosmologies connected to our interdependence of that natural world and that we sort of are 
ingrained with this ideology that we're supposed to be protectors of it because protecting the land and the environment is essentially protecting ourselves. So when you have governments and industry and corporations that their whole idea, ideologies and worldviews are based on extracting resources and gaining individual power and wealth rather than collective, you have these odds, these things at odds, and it becomes very difficult to implement and respect indigenous rights when they're in direct contravention with the values of extracting and gaining personal power and wealth. In your presentation at the Parkland Conference, you discussed how indigenous peoples have been some of the strongest agents of change in the environmental movement. How do you see the environmental movement and indigenous rights movement working and influencing one another? I think that's a really interesting question. I get asked that a lot, like how, what are the intersectionalities between the environmental movement and the indigenous rights movement? Um, I would say when I was younger, like in the 80s, um, the environmental movement and the indigenous rights movement were not one and the same. They held very different views because I think when the environmental movement began, it was a very much like save the environment and the environment was still viewed as an externality, as something that was out there and humanity was in here. And indigenous worldview and cosmology is that the environment is who we are. Uh, it's, there, there's no word for environment in many indigenous languages, uh, including my own. Like there's just the land, the places that like make life. And so, um, it was they, they kind of were at odds because sometimes it would be like there'd be these movements to protect certain things and animals and areas, and they would further actually support the marginalization of indigenous peoples. But as we've moved sort of into 2016, what we've seen is that there's this recognition of that furthering of the marginalization of indigenous peoples through some of the actions of the past and, a, and a, an attempt to move past that and to build bridges of connection between sort of the intersectionality because you know um, your struggle is my struggle and many of these environmental organizations are trying to protect or preserve places that are actually the homelands and traditional territory and sacred sites of many indigenous groups. So we have a common interest and we have a common enemy. And so through that, there's been a process to try and bridge that and build a movement together. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. I mean, there's lots of hurdles along the way because we, we live in a society that's largely founded on a, on a, on a premise of white supremacy. And I'm not saying that as like, like a Ku Klux Klan and you know, that kind of stuff, uh, um, or, or like Hitler's, all of those things. But in a, in a sense that we're talking about systems that support white academia, white science, um, and, and white ideologies as the highest value. And indigenous science, indigenous knowledge, Indigenous ideologies are like a subsector. They're like an addendum or an appendix or supplementary information. Um, and so how do we get past that? And even within the environmental movement, there's issues around, do we write a paper on like policy and carbon emissions or do we write a paper about indigenous rights? And what's gonna move politicians? Well, the thing that's gonna move politicians is probably the stuff rooted in white academia because that's what those systems are structured on. 
So how do we find a way to integrate indigenous knowledge, worldviews, ideologies, and systems of governance into a system that has never made room for us in the past? So that's sort of the biggest challenges that I think both environmental organizations and government even have. Like it's a huge challenge. It, it, it will require the undoing of, of systems of oppression that have existed here for hundreds of years. You're also on the advisory council for an organization called Indigenous Climate Action. Can you tell us how Indigenous Climate Action was started and what the initiatives are? So Indigenous Climate Action sort of came together um, after sort of a lot of those challenges around like working with environmental organizations. And one of the things that we started to really notice was that environmental organizations are getting a lot more respect, particularly within dis discourse with government. So, you know, Greenpeace and you know, Pembina Institute, even like Parkland Institute, all of these sort of think tank environmental organizations um, are, are sort of getting FaceTime and, and meetings with government officials. And they were sort of pushing these narratives around the climate discussions. And there was no one sort of wholly there just for the indigenous rights component. And so we're like, there's this sort of gap there's this gap in, in, in um, advocacy with government, advocacy within the environmental movement, advocacy within the climate justice movement. And while, yes, many of these organizations are towing the line of Indigenous rights issues, Indigenous people need to speak for themselves. It's a part of breaking that mold of like white supremacy, of like white people speaking on our behalf. So we're like, okay, so how do we do this? We're like, well, one, <laughs> we gotta get our communities talking about climate change. We gotta like hear directly from them, not some academic paper done by somebody else who went to a community that said, oh, climate change is real. It's like, what are our people actually saying? How do we bring the voices of our people out to the surface done by our people to support that narrative that indigenous people do have the ability <laughs> and, um, and, and the, the structures to do that? And so it, it kind of a coalition of indigenous women. Um, so like Jesse Cardinal from Kikino Métis Settlement, Crystal Lehman with Beaver Lake, Moulin Labukon, Massimo with um, Lubicon Cree, um, myself with Athabasca Chippewan. We're all people that live in the heart of the tar sands. And then we sort of did some reach out to some other folks and we're just like, we need to do this. We just gotta like make it happen. Let's bring our people together and start the conversation. And when we started the conversation, we were surprised by how many people that wanted to come. We were, thought we were going to have a meeting of like 75 people, and it turned out to be like 150. We had to double our budgets. We had to like do all this stuff. And in the end, we got such amazing information from people that really want to be a part of this conversation in a meaningful way. You've spoken about safeguarding your rights and lands, but how do you safeguard your mind and persevere as an activist? I don't know, maybe I'm just a masochist. Uh, <laughs> um, <clears throat> I, I, you know, I have, I have children, so I think that that is probably a huge part of it. Um, and even in all of the craziness, they don't, they don't know an, a world other than the world we live in, right? And so it's hard for them to have the perspective that can seem very sad and depressing. And so they walk through this world predominantly happy, um, without understanding the greater sadness that is sort of looming overhead. And so maintaining my children's happiness is probably part of what drives me. 
maintaining not just their their mental ha happiness, but their spiritual happiness, their physical happiness, and their ability to continue to be like proud of who they are and know what that means. Those are all things that I think keep me going and persevering, but it's, it's hard. I mean, it's, it, it's depressing some days. Um, and it's not easy. And this, this line of work takes really thick skin. I mean, you're criticized by people in your own community, by the government, by other you know, scientists, academia, like it, it's, it's, it's a very, very hard thing to do, but my children inspire me to continue to move forward every single day. That's a beautiful note to end our interview on. Thank you. This has been an interview with Ariel Deranger, a member of the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation and speaker at the Parkland Conference in 2016. I'm Lauren Carter, and you're listening to Terra Informa. So we hope you've enjoyed the poetry and the discussion. If you want to hear more stories about artists and activists and connections to climate change, check out our website at terrainforma.ca for past episodes. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory, the historic territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples who continue living and gathering here. If you have any questions or comments, you can send us an email Terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at Terra Informa. And we'd love to hear from you. We're always looking for new stories or new ideas so we can keep reporting on what is important to our listeners. Thanks to the folks who worked on this week's episode, Amanda Rooney, Hannah Cunningham, Carter Korzitsa, Shelley Jodoy, and Amanda Weeb. I've been your host, Sydney Carbon. Catch us again next week right here on Terra Informa.